Super Talk Mississippi media production. Coleman Taylor Transmission, servicing Central Mississippi for over 60 years. Their ASE certified technicians offer dependable transmission services, a warranty, and record services. Call Coleman Taylor today for all your transmission needs. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day. <laughs> this would be the last one of February, an extended February. <laughs> That is correct. We get another day. In a normal year, this would be the last day of February. That's right. But we got an old leap year on us here, right? And I am firmly in the camp of, since it only happens once every four years, it should be considered an international holiday. (laughs) And everybody gets leap day off. (laughs) Leap day vacation, huh? I can dig it. Well, I think the world can come to a halt for one day every four years. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to think about that one. I'm not sure that, I don't know that the bosses would be too happy about that one. Well, uh, so I just completed an interview with our good friend Ricky Matthews for his show, Coast View. Ricky Matthews Show. Ricky Matthews Show, pardon me, not the Coast View Show. Right, thank you for correcting me there. So, um, and that was fun. So once again, I'm working overtime. <laughs> Uh, I'm happy to, though. This was uh, a great discussion about, uh, as you can imagine, health care. And that comes on the heels of the uh, the House Medicaid Committee yesterday, passed HB 1725. That would be the bill authored by Speaker of the House, Jason White, which would implement so-called Medicaid expansion in the state of Mississippi. That passed, uh, I attended the meeting. It was kind of short and sweet, honestly. Passed unanimously. I say unanimously because I didn't hear anybody say nay. There may have been some those who abstained, but I I didn't see it. You know, it happens so fast. You kind of have to look. There's like 30 people on the committee. But nonetheless... It is passed without a whole bunch of consternation. I don't know what to expect on the floor. I really don't. I'm, I'm serious about that. I, I have uh, talked to a number of legislators uh, on the House side in particular because they're the ones that's doing this deal first. Oh, pardon me. And so I don't know what's going on there. What, what uh, is going to happen? I do know that leadership 
is doing what they always do. They're whipping the vote. And there are folks, I guess, uh, that serve in the House there that are calling around, checking with their constituents, as they should, and others to see where they stand on this. I don't know, Rhino, that I could remember such a high-profile issue that had support of leadership where the members of the respective chambers are not completely aligned. And I say that meaning that it's not like a little bit. It's like a, a lot of just differing perspective and position. And I, I mean, you, you, you could probably think of something, but that uh, fits into that characterization. But at this point, normally speaking, if leadership really full-throated supports something, normally folks fall in line. Normally. You're thinking about it. You're not well, sure. Well, I mean, I, I think of stuff like tax reform, where leadership says we want to do this or that, and then the body goes, well, I don't know if I can get behind A, but I can get behind B. Well, sure. And then somebody else comes on and goes, I don't like B, I'm getting behind A. and it's Well, and I think that's part of the sausage making. But I think, however, even in tax reform, I think it's fair to say overall in the House there was an appetite. When Speaker of the House Philip Gunn made that his top priority, I would argue two years ago, there was a there was a a strong appetite in the House to fully eliminate the income tax, and a bill got passed. But remember, it was the first one that I supported. I thought it was the best one we've seen yet. But man, did it get some feathers ruffled, as they say because it called for an increase in some consumption, sales taxes. And that uh, wasn't met with a whole uh, lot of acceptance. And then it got over there in the Senate, and it it died. But I think, Rhino, it's safe to say it died because, for the most part, Senate leaders, and there were, there were some rank-and-file senators as well, that just fundamentally didn't support the concept of elimination of the income tax. So we got we got a kind of a scaled down version, shall we say, that phases in a reduction of the income tax, not a full elimination, but a reduction over four years. First year we eliminated the four percent bracket, and then we start to phase out one percentage point of the 5% bracket over a three-year period. That's where we are right now, ultimately resulting in a single income tax bracket of 4% of all taxable income greater than $10,000. That's where we're headed. That's what we got. Now, that obviously falls short of total elimination. But And maybe you're right. Maybe this Medicaid expansion thing, maybe this first kind of shot at it doesn't pass. Or it um, it's brought up and we end up with 
a, a number of amendments, which is likely, I would say, for something this sweeping, this involved. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although I didn't see... Because you'll have half to three-quarters of whichever body you choose, the House or the Senate, that sees this as something historic. I want to put my stamp on it. Here's my amendment that I made, that I made a difference. If for no other reason, yes. I agree. I would just say to any legislators listening, Mississippi is a red state. Mississippi is a conservative state. And there are at least a handful of more pressing matters to conservative voters than Medicaid expansion, especially considering the whole run-up to the legislative session. We had multiple discussions on this very show talking about how Medicaid expansion isn't the only option out there and you need to weigh all the options. It just feels like this is getting shoved down everybody's throat. While we let stuff like, oh, I don't know, tax reform or the ballot initiative or school choice or any number of other conservative platform planks just fall by the wayside. They just get kicked on down the road because we can't come to terms between 40,000 votes between the House and the Senate for the ballot initiative. Yeah. So, by the way, I was uh, speaking of that. I was uh, notified just before we came on the program. Let's see if I can find it here, that the ballot initiative in the Senate passed. Um, I'm going to take a look at it, if I can find it here. Oh, yeah, they passed it uh, out of the Senate AET uh, committee this morning. So I, I want to I point something out I learned yesterday, by the way, from the same individual who just sent me this text, who's, who's tracking this very closely. The Senate version, listen to me carefully here, you know it has a higher signature threshold. That's a major distinction with the House version. House, roughly 160,000 signatures uh, to get a measure on the ballot to be approved by the Secretary of State for such. The Senate, 200, roughly 1,000. Okay, Present, about 108. So present, 108. New bill, House, 160. New bill, Senate, 200. All right. This was a caveat I was not aware of until somebody called me about it yesterday in the Senate. The approval of a measure, the ratification of a measure, requires 60%, not a simple majority. 60%. Right? 100 people vote, 60 of them got to say yes for it to become law. Not a simple majority. Best I can tell, no other state in the country has a 60% threshold to ratify a referendum, essentially. 60%. Now, the House, standard majority. Senate, 60%. Okay, I'm, I'm told by this individual that did not change, and it got passed out of committee intact with the 60% approval requirement. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Quentin Whitwell at 11.05. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. Super Talk Mississippi. 
So you told me you just uh, pulled it up. Tell the folks what the this concurrent resolution because it's got to go the uh, the ballot to get ratified by the people to stick it in the Constitution to create the process. What's it? What's it called? Yeah, it's uh, Senate Concurrent Resolution Five Two Seven. It's a concurrent resolution proposing amendments to Section Thirty Three, Fifty Six, Sixty One, and Seventy Two of the Mississippi Constitution. To provide that the people reserve to themselves the right to exercise the legislative power of the state to propose new laws. Okay. So do you do you happen to see in there the sixty percent requirement? You see that? I haven't found it yet. I'm okay. No seven problem. pages, so it shouldn't be too hard. Yeah. No problem. Uh, but I mean, I'm confident this the individual that I'm communicating with is uh, is tracking this extremely closely. Yeah, Mer- it's online. The, the Senate starts on line 83. Okay. The initiative measure shall be submitted to the electors. An initiative measure must not receive, not must receive not less than 60% of the total votes cast at the election. Okay. There you go. 60% threshold. So here's my gut feel. You tell me what you think. I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a prediction. You ready? We ain't going to get nothing. That's my prediction. I just don't know. You know, we have a the, – the point of contention last time, for the most part, I think it's safe to say, it was the number of signatures required. So as you recall, the House wanted to stick with the existing signature requirement, even though it's essentially null and void what's in our Constitution now. The Supreme Court has said as much, but it requires 12 percent of those who cast ballots, or the total ballots cast, in the last gubernatorial election. That amounts to about 108,000 signatures. The new resolution proposed on the House side is 8% of the total electors. And we have confirmed with the Secretary of State's office that includes both voters registered in the state of Mississippi who were active and inactive. I can't remember the exact definition of what an inactive voter is, but as long as they're on the roll, the bottom line is that has to be counted as the total number of electors uh, upon which the 8% is applied, and that's how you end up with 160,000 signatures required in the House. In the Senate, it's 10% of total electors. 200,000, a difference of 40. You may I'm still trying to determine whether or not this is the votes for the measure or if it means the measure has to get 60% of the total votes cast in order for it to be valid. And that sounds confusing, but let me see if I can break it down. Yeah. When you think of winning or losing on an election, yep. you usually think of 
a majority versus a minority. So 50% plus one versus almost 50%, 50% minus one. Okay. The way this is worded, it sounds like they don't want an initiative to be on the ballot for a special interest group that nobody cares about and nobody votes on. So say you have 500,000 people that vote in the election. They vote for their for the governor, lieutenant governor, the secretary of state, whatever. But you only get that's I know what 25,000 people vote on the measure. Okay. So, you know, that's what happened uh, on the flag. Remember, we had we were presented with choices on the flag. It wasn't a, do you want to keep the old flag or or um, adopt this new? And it was here are some choices. Um, well, hold on a second. No, I'm thinking about something different. I think it was the medical marijuana deal. Maybe not. When was the when was the president? The presidential election was 2020. Was the flag on the 2020? Ballot, because what I'm where I'm going is I remember the Secretary of State telling us that more people voted for the ballot measure on the presidential ballot in 2020 than they did for a candidate for president. Meaning, some people left the headline vote blank; they just didn't vote for a president. But they voted for a flag choice. That's what I'm remembering. There was more who cast ballots. So I think Weren't what they both in 2020. Maybe they were both. Maybe that's what it was. Uh, that's another part of this bill. It says you can't have more than that's two right. initiatives. It's which is conf- it is confusing. There's no doubt because you got to have all this other text on the ballot to to somewhat describe what you're voting on. Um, but, okay, I'm reading it. And it but the it, way that's worded, because it's worded, an initiative measure must receive not less than yeah. 60% of the total votes cast at the election at which the initiative measure was submitted to be approved. So that's confusing. I agree with Some, you. Somebody needs to clear that up. Yeah. Uh, so, but Or else you're going to have people in court arguing that this initiative is invalid because it didn't get 60%. And, right. Because the same thing could happen. You could leave a headline blank. You could just show up and just vote for the whatever the ballot initiative is uh, on the, your ballot and leave, it, leave everything else blank. Or vote for everything but that, which would trigger perhaps this 60% threshold. I agree, it's confusing. But my understanding from talking to my contact is, the intent at least, is that, Sixty percent would have to vote for a measure. Sixty percent of all the votes that voted in the measure, on the measure, I should say, would have to vote for it, for it to pass, be adopted. Not a simple majority. That's my understanding. I will definitely clarify that. And I agree. I'm reading it, too. I got it in front of me. It's a little bit confusing. I would agree with you. Because, and I, and I, I think it's because 60% of the total votes cast at the election at which the initiative measure was submitted to be approved, the election is different than the measure, right? Is that kind of the way you're seeing it? Yeah. Yeah. So that is confusing. I don't see why, how that could even be that big a deal. I mean, or that, or that, that would mean 40% of the people who voted 
in an election would have to leave the ballot measure on the ballot blank, not cast a vote for it, not mark it, right, for it to fail, not be even considered. That's the way I read that. So that's confusing. I don't think there's any such language on the House bill. So what that technically, if that's the case, that technically means should the House bill become not law, but embedded in our Constitution, because that's where it goes, prescribing this process. And you have an election, and there's an initiative placed on the ballot through this process. And let's say 100,000 people vote in the election, but only one cast a ballot, <laughs> cast a uh, vote, I should say, for the measure, well, the thing fails. I mean, that's, I guess that's possible. Or you could say, okay, 59,999 vote for the measure of those total voters in the election. Therefore, it didn't get the 60% threshold, didn't clear that. Thing fails. Even My though, only question for the Senate now, instead of just the legislation, legislators as a body, just, just the Senate, this, this is for you. Yeah. Why do you insist on having a higher threshold for signatures if you're also including a stopgap to make sure that it has true. a higher threshold of votes? That's that's true. Because you don't want it? Or is that what it is? Are you really <laughs> tipping your hand to say, we don't want this, we're just playing patty cake here? Because if so, say it with your chest. Quit hiding behind smoke and mirrors, Senate of the state of Mississippi. If you don't want the citizens of the state of Mississippi to be able to do things that y'all are too lazy to do, then come out and say it with some gusto. All right, so now I think you're going where I am, which is, okay, I don't think we're going to get anything. <laughs> that's, where I'm, that's where I'm going with this. I, I just... And I, I really can't say why other than fundamentally I think there are some folks that just object to the idea of governing being done by, in this case, it is more direct democracy. Then they should have the gumption to come out and say it instead of trying to stick in poison pills in bills they hope don't pass. Okay, well, I, I, will, I will point this out. You're right. Senator Polk has actually said that. Remember when he had the committee, I can't remember which one it was, that this thing was flowing through. He actually said that, and I don't think we need this. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he didn't try to hide behind it. Quentin Whitwell, chairman of the board of Panola Medical Center at 1105. It's Sam Creekmore. Uh, He's coming on at 1220. Stay with us. From the Seabrook Paint Doctor, the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. Well, that's the great Tommy Shaw. 
lead vocalist and guitarist for Sticks. Blue collar man. That's kind of what we feel like sometimes right here, don't we? <laughs> so, all right, so I know you and I were having this discussion about uh, it is confusing language. We'll, we'll agree to that. And, yeah. and you can interpret it either way. Would you agree? Okay. Which is why I say it needs to be cleared up or it's going to wind up in legal battles. Okay. So I just asked my contact, right? And he, uh, he I said, this is the question. You tell me if you think I phrased this correctly to to describe the confusion. 60% of total ballots cast in the election or 60% of votes cast on the measure? You agree? Yeah. Said on the measure, which is kind of what I originally thought. And, but then you after, would think they would include the word supermajority. Agree. I said, well, we just talked about this on the show, and the language is very confusing. Response, yes, it is. The only reason I know on the measure, in quotes, is because the author, David Parker, Senator David Parker, told me. That's what I thought the intent did. I said that. I think the spirit and intent is 60% on the measure. When you read that section, it is not clear. So (laughs) my contact, who's working uh, on this matter, working, by the way, to get the legislature to restore the ballot initiative. I want to be clear on that. This is... uh, someone who is uh, paid to do so, okay, Um, to get the measure um, process restored in the state of Mississippi. So that's where we are. Uh, But the language is lacking clarity. I think that's, that's fine. I mean, we should point out, Rhino, that the drafting of bills is a monumental task. Oh yeah, every year they're they're drafting attorneys that are and very signed. rarely actually done in entirety by the author. That's correct. Um, but the every dra- once in a while, the author will be the sole or the the person that dropped the bill will be the sole author. But that's very rare. But that then gets turned into legal language to to um, meet the state requirements for a bill to become law. And those are drafting attorneys that do that based on what the members say. Okay, this is what I want. And I'm simplifying the process, but in general, that's how it works. And and then they draft it. It, It's, you know, it's no different than if you were to meet with an attorney and say, I need a contract for do something. Here's kind of the essence of the contract, major provisions. And they turn that into legal language that... um, it complies with law essentially, and there's a structure that 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 uh, excuse me that legislative measures must comply with to to be considered, voted on, and become law. And so it could be something. And a lot of it deals with the specificity of language. Correct, and and it could be just a, a little bit of confusion here, uh, or just a small breakdown. But nonetheless, I believe that is the intent. And now I got somebody that's telling me that is very trustworthy on this, that talked directly to the author, said, yeah, the intent is we got to get 60% of the votes on the measure to pass it, to, to for it to be ratified, approved. So there you go. We'll see where that goes. I still think that that's going to cause enough problem with the House that we might not get anything. I could see how you could maybe talk about compromising on the signatures, but 
on this thing, okay, 55, I don't see that, right? I think it's either a simple majority or something else crazy. Super majority, for example. Hmm. Man, oh, man. Back to the uh, ceasefire text line here. When it comes to, this is Dave from Monticello, Medicaid expansion, we need to think about the past gubernatorial election. It was a key component of Brandon Presley's campaign. The governor's been very well stated that he does not favor it. The governor still won handily. So is it truly something that the state of Mississippi citizens are clamoring for? It's hard to tell, is it not, that a candidate for office is elected or defeated based on a single issue like that. You, you, could, you could go through that, uh, that process and try to figure that out. You, you also should consider that if we were to get, I believe, the ballot measure restored, I think one of the first things you'd see get to the ballot would be if the legislature didn't do it, Expansion of Medicaid, that's basically teed up right now, ready to get to the ballot. And it would pass. It'd probably get 70% approval because it'd get all the Democrats and at least half the Republicans in the state. Now, that's different. That's a direct democracy approach. But that's what the risk is of having a ballot measure. So just something to consider. On the ceasefire text line, uh, the Speaker of the House, Jason White, said federal money is free. I'm retired, but still pay taxes to feds. He's lying. Said that on Gallo this morning. I also pay my health insurance premium and utilities. It's only 53% of Mississippi working-age people do. 53% of – I'm not following that. Only 53% of the people in Mississippi pay their utilities? I don't I don't know where that stat comes from. But, uh, okay, so – the speaker's not lying. What the point being made here is that when you consider the financial model for not just Medicaid expansion, but Medicaid too, that it is primarily funded by the federal government. That's absolutely true. And in the case of Medicaid expansion, the, I think the sticking point here is when, when you say funded by the federal government, the federal government is funded by taxpayers. Right, except 51% of the households in the country pay no taxes, no income taxes. In the state of Mississippi, for every dollar we send to the federal government, federal government sends us three back, which means that the deep blue states of California, New Jersey, Illinois, New York, they're literally funding the state of Mississippi. And I know you and I have had that discussion many times, and you could go round and round about that. But it is. But it's still the citizens living uh, in those blue states agree. paying taxes to the federal government. I agree. That the federal government uses. I agree. But we're not telling Mississippi. I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate here. Mississippians aren't saying, hey, federal government, just send me a dollar for every dollar I send you, right? Because you know what happened if the state would crash. Crash, literally. Um, so, and I get it, but. I'm going to point something else out that I think has gotten so crazy, and I hate that it's even this way, when you start talking about, I send my taxes. I'm with you. But here's the reality. Between income taxes paid by individuals, the sources of revenue of the federal government, individual income taxes, corporate income taxes, Social Security taxes, Medicare taxes, those are the primary buckets. That amounts to about $4.3 trillion a year. We spend $6.3 trillion. So it's not like that your taxes that you're sending are covering all the spending. They're not. Thus, a $2 trillion annual deficit. 
We only send enough money to the federal government to pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest, and a few other federal assistance programs. We don't send enough money to pay for the military, to pay for all the other federal agencies. In fact, they have to get $300 billion of debt to, to cover their expenses. It's, so it's not like, okay, well, if, and the other point I want to make, it's not like, okay, if Mississippi expands Medicaid, we're going to have to raise federal taxes. Well, that would be like saying, if we keep the Army going, we're going to have to raise federal taxes because we don't presently send enough money to fund that. Or you could say, well, we could fund the military, but we're going to have to do away with Social Security. I mean, that's just mathematical fact. We send $4.3 trillion, the federal government spends $6.3 trillion. It's insane. I agree. I know. And, and I hear this argument. We shouldn't be sending that money to Ukraine. I'm with them. We should use that money to fund the border wall. Well, it's, we're, not, we're not funding the border walls, not because we don't have the money, because we don't make decisions based on whether or not we have the money. It's because you can't get the votes in the House, the Senate, and in the White House to approve building the border wall. It's got nothing to do with money. If we didn't send a dime to Ukraine, the border wall is not going to get built. And then you hear people say, well, we shouldn't do that. We ought to take care of, like illegals. I'm with them. I agree. I don't want to spend money on that either. we got people in this country that are more needy. But it's not an either-or. It's So many times we've explained that. It's not like they sit around the Congress and say, let's see, we only got $4.3 trillion coming in, so here's yours, here's yours, here's yours. Okay, we're done. We don't have any more. Nope. You know what they do? They say, how much do you guys want to spend this year? About $6.3 trillion. Sure. Okay, $2 trillion in debts. That's what's happening right now. That's what's happening right now. It's not like that they're going to come for you and say, we're going to have to raise your taxes to pay for this, that, and the other. No, that's not how it works. We just print money. Now, you pay taxes at the pump in the form of inflation and at the grocery store indirectly, but it's not income taxes. After the break, it's Quentin Wentwell, chairman of the board of Panola Medical Center. One segment left in this hour. Stay with us. Good days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. We are back in the Element Well studio. It is midday. So once again, Quentin Wentwell, uh, chairman of the board and co-owner Panola Medical Center at 1105. That would be after the break. And then it's Sam Creekmore, member of the Mississippi House of Representatives, represents District 14, chairman of the Public Health and Human Services Committee. He's joining us at 1220. Looking forward to that. Um, Yeah, so... I get people saying, well, I pay mine, they ought to pay theirs. This is the important distinction. And I understand that. People concerned about, I don't want to pay the way for others. But consider this about Medicaid, which is unique, and all the various welfare assistance programs. 
These aren't checks. These aren't deposits. These aren't funds going directly to the person. This is paying the person, people, assets, resources, hospitals, clinics, treating the person. Because right now they get it for free. Regardless of what you think about Medicaid and federal government and welfare and all that stuff, fundamentally, in my opinion, it ain't fair for people to work for free. I challenge anybody to say, oh, that's fine. Just keep working for free because that's what's happening right now. You know that. That's happening. It is the only industry which is mandated by law, federal law, to give their services away. Only one. I can't find another one that says, oh, yeah, you can't charge for that. Unless you're a retailer in San Francisco. <laughs> That's true. I got that story, too. I was so mad about that last night. So mad. Unbelievable. Where was the other one? There's a, like a Volvo dealer somewhere. You see that? Freaking thugs. Still like 19 vehicles from a dealer. They just let them go. It's ridiculous. And a lot of this, I think, is being orchestrated by the cartels and the illegals. They're paying. Yeah, that's a, a growing problem for Southern California is the encroachment of the cartels on previously already occupied gangland turf. Right. But Very I just, well could lead to a turf <clears throat> war between the gangs that have been... Not peaceful, but much more peaceful than they have been in decades prior in Oakland and the surrounding areas, suddenly getting into an all-out war with the cartels. That's exactly what's happening. Thank you, Joe. Bye. And you're dumb, do-nothing, refuse to acknowledge there's a problem policies. But, but that is a distinction I just want to make about Medicaid. This isn't about giving something free to 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 people, honestly, they're already getting it for free. This is about paying the people who are delivering the service. That's not fair. I, that's got to be addressed. Now, if we could, as Thomas wants to do from Greenwood, if we could repeal the federal law that compels health care providers, emergency rooms specifically, to deliver their service for free, we could solve the problem. People would die. You show up today, as I've said so many times, and you're experiencing some sort of urgent health problem, like a heart attack, a stroke, numerous other ailments, you're going to get treated. You're going to get stabilized and treated, whether you can pay or not. And they just eat it. The health care providers do. Now, the federal government does, by the way, your tax money to, the, to our listener here. Federal federal government does give some reimbursement. It's way below what actual cost is. It's way below what Medicaid or Medicare would pay. It's called disproportionate share payments, DSH payments, to help offset the uncompensated and undercompensated care. But it's not enough to cover the total cost. Well, that's the, the ugly truth that the proponents of Medicaid expansion will never tell you likely because most of the proponents have never actually dealt with Medicaid. But if you have Medicaid and you present Medicaid as your insurance to a health care provider, right. 
the level of service is going to be the bare minimum they can get away with. That's absolutely right. That's because they're not getting paid for it, or they're getting underpaid for it. So you've got people that, that, that have convinced themselves this is going to be a panacea. It's just going to be a cure-all. It's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. That's not true either. And you're going to have people sign up and go to the doctor and get worse treatment. That's absolutely not true either. Yeah, I agree with you. So, uh, Which is why I think some truth needs to be shined on the issue, which is what I, I hope we've done a little bit here and and uh, certainly during my testimony last week. But so I know this person says, I pay for everything. I have. For years, I've watched black women buy groceries with EBT cards and then see them in better vehicles than I can afford. Call me racist, but this is the truth. But here's the important distinction. The grocery store got paid. Got paid. Got paid. The doctor doesn't. That's the difference. You don't present your EBT card to the doctor and say, hey, look, fix my heart attack. No, you just get your heart attack fixed. You get treated, and you, you you get released, and you don't pay for it, and they eat it. And, that, and that's what's driving the whole industry crazy right now. Fox News, Super Talk News next. Stay with us. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is Middays. We're live in the Element Well studio on this hump day. We welcome now to the program Quentin Whitwell, chairman of the board and co-owner Panola Medical Center. Quentin, how you doing? Good to see you again. Hey, how are you, Gerard? Good to see you as well. Uh, you look very sharp in that tie, and uh, I'm, I'm wearing my Lane Kiffin Ole Miss gear. Right I now. see that. I love it, man. Got the got the white pullover with the Ole Miss logo in view. That's awesome. I uh, love it. So, yeah, Lane has kind of popularized the white, I guess, has he not, with the Ole Miss logo. You can always pick him out see him walking around the sidelines with that white on, but that's pretty cool. So That's right. Um, all right, so Panola Medical Center, of course, in, in Panola County, the Batesville area in, in Mississippi. I know you've been tracking uh, this issue diligently, uh, that of health care, and, and in particular since the legislature's been uh, in session, a very high-profile legislative issue, the uh, whether or not the state should adopt Medicaid expansion, something we've talked about quite a bit on the program, is, uh, including today, I know you're aware that the House committee, led by uh, Chairwoman Missy McGee from uh, the Hattiesburg area, it did, in fact, pass out of committee HB 1725. That is the bill authored by Speaker of the House Jason White, which would implement the expansion coverage group in the state of Mississippi. What, What do you think about this at this point? Well, first of all, just a little history. As you know, I've been uh, watching uh, our state and other states for a long time, especially in the South, who uh, have been very hesitant to pass these types of laws. And we have 
work very hard on the rural emergency hospital model, mainly because of the fact that Medicaid uh, expansion has not occurred, and that enables us to uh, operate through essentially all federal rules and regulations. Uh, so many of my hospitals I've converted to rural emergency hospital, which has um, has a little bit of impact on the Medicaid expansion, but not quite as much. Um, and we did it because of all the delays and the, the, the timetable. And so now looking at the landscape of the future of having Medicaid expansion, I think it could be of great benefit to many hospitals and even some of the hospitals that we're looking at uh, and uh, targeting for, you know, purchase and acquisition. Um, just the recent enhancements uh, did help. Uh, everyone got some additional monies in January, and uh, that really uh, helped a lot of struggling hospitals to continue operations um, when they were really on the fence. So um, as to the particulars of the bill, I have not had a chance to dive into all the details yet, but I have spoken to some leaders and officials, and they do believe that this will be a workable program based on at least the, the concepts that were put forward in that bill. Okay. Well, uh, I, I actually attended the uh, committee meeting yesterday and, and noted that it, it passed without uh, any any objections, as best I could tell, you know, observing it. Um, and it, the reason I say that is, as you know, those, those votes are, are voice votes. And uh, sometimes people just don't say anything, so you don't know where they stand once a bill gets to the floor. And yeah, I know you you know the process, and sometimes they'll vote one way in committee and another way on the floor. That, that's happened as well. So um, that's correct. Yeah, so I, I'm kind of handicapping it at, at fifty fifty at this point. I know the speaker is uh, has been a strong proponent and champion for this. It's his bill, obviously. Um, he spoke to my rotary uh, on Monday. He was he was the scheduled speaker, and he spent a fair amount of time talking about this issue and talking about this bill and explaining all the detailed uh, provisions. But uh, and then we don't have anything out of the Senate just yet. We haven't seen their their official bill at this point. But the lieutenant governor has right. indicated he he supports it. But he also made it clear he would only do so with the stipulation of a work requirement. Uh, and that does exist in the House bill that is going to require a waiver from CMS. I don't know, Quentin. I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that CMS is not likely to approve that. The Biden administration made it clear when he was um, just shortly after his inauguration, as a matter of fact, we're not, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not approving these waivers for work requirements. You, where do you think that's going? Right. Well, you know, I've been wrong before, and I could be wrong again. Um, I was very glad to see the enhancement was approved. As you know, last time you had me on your show, I was skeptical that yeah. they would allow the enhancement without the expansion, and they did. Yeah, um, that's true. I do. I yeah. I mean, I I personally think that um, these administrations, you know, I mean, politics is just you know, it's a different world now, as we all know, and it, it seems to be so polarizing. But my hope is that you know, at the end of the day, the state of Mississippi does have the right to pass what they believe is workable for them. Uh, there have been other states that have you know redone. Uh, the program and the expansion in the fashion that they feel more comfortable with. Sure. And I think the state of Mississippi should have the ability to do that. I think, um, 
you know, things like work requirements. Um, you know, I mean, it's not something that Quentin Whitwell might would put in there, but I understand the reasoning behind it. And, and it's pretty consistent with, you know, what we've said all along on welfare laws and other things like that. And yeah. so, you know, I mean, I, you know, I just have to see the final product, but I hope that whatever Mississippi passes is workable. And I do hope that it is approved if we in fact pass it, because it really would be really bad if after all these years of rejecting it and not accepting uh, the funding, if we finally say we're going to accept it, but then we don't get it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, and of course, the way the House bill is structured, if the work requirement waiver, if that waiver is not approved by September 30th of this year, the Division of Medicaid is instructed, uh, would be instructed by law to continue to implement the program absent the waiver, absent the work requirement, uh, is, is the way it's set up. But it does have a, a four-year repealer on it. So it, essentially, I guess you could kind of say it's temporary, it's a dry run. I think it's fairly unlikely that at the end of four years, either that repealer isn't pushed out or the legislature doesn't take some other action to extend it, make it permanent, something to that effect. Um, You know, you'd be talking about adding up to 250,000, maybe even more. We don't know the exact number, but most estimates peg it at 200,000. To the program, it's unlikely... You just um, terminate the program and and um, have these people go back to the uninsured roles, which is a big problem in the hospital industry, yeah. is it not, Quentin? It is a big problem. I mean, the millions of dollars of uncompensated care that all of our hospitals are having to write off while we are providing all of those services, uh, along with the fact that both uh, commercial carriers and, of course, uh, Medicare payment structures uh, continue to go down or prior authorizations and other things are uh, stipulated that allow us to not get paid as often. Um, the margins are just slim. And so when, when when you're doing all the right things, you want to be compensated for as much as you possibly can. And, um, you know, and I'm very, of course, the good thing about Mississippi, based on the reports I'm seeing and the, the, the things the governor's putting out, it looks like Mississippi's doing really well with the low unemployment workforce anyway. So maybe it's not going to affect very many people in Mississippi because we got people working. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, we still do have a, a very low labor force participation rate. We have low unemployment, but, of course, that doesn't account for people that aren't actually looking for work. And that's where the labor force participation rate comes in. I think that's part of the the uh, impetus for the speaker and the lieutenant governor here with this Medicaid expansion is we include this work requirement in there. Maybe we can get people off the sidelines and go out and, and seek work because they would be able to enroll in Medicaid and have health insurance. I think that kind of remains to be seen as yeah. to how big a motivator that would be. Well, you're right. That would be very interesting. I've read a Wall Street Journal article about Mississippi having low participation in the workforce, and the governor mentioned that a lot of it has to do with conservative values and people, you know, stay-at-home moms and things of that nature. And I don't know all of the the data behind all of that, but certainly um, I think those are things that we don't seem to think are bad things. So, you know, I mean, I don't want to exclude – 
people that are not working for good reasons. Maybe, you know, they have a spouse that has a good job and they want to, you know, be there for their family. So, you know, we got to think about that too. You know, what, what are we trying to really, what is our true objective here? But hopefully we'll pass this Medicaid expansion and we'll let it go to work and see if it helps our rural hospitals. Quinn, good to see you. Appreciate you joining us today, and uh, we'll be tracking it, and I know we'll be getting together soon to talk some more about that. Thank you. Come see me in Oxford. Take care. You got it. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio. From the Seabrook Paint Doctor. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studio, Sports Talk Mississippi going to be at M Trade Park this Friday to kick off the spring seasons of baseball, fast pitched, and soccer. Nearly 150 teams will be in Oxford this weekend for USSA baseball. For the full schedule of tournaments this spring, visit mtradepark.com. Don't miss the boys on Sports Talk live from M Trade Park in Oxford. This Friday, if you're going to play, play M-Trade. Go to MyElementWealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The Dow presently trending uh, downward, down 72 points. It's come off its lows of the session. It was down over 200 earlier in the day. The NASDAQ down 63 That's because we got some GDP revisions, as we always do, to the fourth quarter of 2023 downward a bit. So it it is thought by many that the economy is starting to moderate a little. And investors are a bit nervous about that. On the ceasefire text line, Ben from Madison, I can't support the Senate's version of the ballot initiative. At this point, I wonder if leaving the process dormant until the state gains a congressional district is what's best. What Ben's talking about there is we do have a process that is prescribed in our Constitution, and that's where this this has to come from, Uh, in our Constitution but it is it is uh, built around the state having five congressional districts. That is what gave rise to the lawsuit on Initiative 65, the medical marijuana initiative, that did pass, but then was challenged. The Supreme Court did strike down the uh, the measure, said, well, it doesn't work because we don't have but four congressional districts with respect to the provision that requires an equal distribution of signatures across the state's five congressional districts. That is explicit 
explicitly stated in the law. The problem is we ain't got before. So uh, what Ben's suggesting is maybe we just ought to wait till we get five. So, Ben, I'm not sure that happened in our lifetime, honestly. We are about, um, according to my calculations, uh, just under 600,000 in new population short of gaining another district. So the present congressional district requires 761,000 and some, I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but seven, roughly 761,000. So you take the total state population divided by 761, that's how many districts you get. That's the way it works. That's across the country, by the way. And that's everything being equal. That's right. That doesn't even take into account the fact that for population growth to get to a point of changing congressional districts, you have to grow almost exponentially faster than the country at large. That's exactly right. So uh, according to my calculations, though, that that means that we're about almost 600,000 people short of adding a district where we'd have five. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Just uh, um, That would be a 20% increase in our population. And we don't do that but every 10 years. So I think that's decades away, if at all. So I don't know that that's a, um, a, a viable option. He points out Florida has a 60% threshold, but that's constitutional amendments. Yeah, that makes total sense for constitutional amendments. I could get on board with that. Um, also points out Arkansas, their, their signature threshold is 90K, so we're more than double that in the Senate and just short of double that with the House's version. Yeah, so... It turns out, he says, both the flag and the medical marijuana were on the 20 ballot. Okay, well, no wonder it was so dang confusing. But it is true. You do recall that more people voted for the down ballot measure there. I say down ballot because it always starts with, in that presidential election, the president, senators, blah, 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 House, state, so forth. And more people voted for the ballot measure than they did the flag, I believe, specifically, than they did the president. So they just left the the uh, the president vote blank on their ballot. So uh, we'll see where that goes. I'm not sure. Let's see. You were talking about the stock market. It made me check the funny money. It's yeah. way up. Yeah, it is. Like way up. Five thousand bucks today, I think. Last I saw. Yeah, it's tapered off just a little bit from that, but yeah, it just ticked back over five thousand. Yeah. It's Bitcoin is the the funny money I'm talking about. Oh, specifically, okay. okay. And it is currently at sixty two one sixty, which is, yeah. gosh, that's two thousand less than its all time high. Yeah, unbelievable. Jerry, uh, this is Jerry, in um, let's see on the ceasefire text line. Good morning. A question that y'all may have already discussed, but why are the Republicans so bent on expanding the Democrat voting base? Huh? All this talk about restoring suffrage to convicts that have served their time, their rights to a lot of things were removed when they were convicted. They gave up those rights when they committed their crime. Punish lawbreakers. Don't baby them. I, it's really a matter of once they've served their time and fulfilled their societal obligation, should their rights be restored? It's a it's a very difficult, complex question. I don't I don't know any Republicans that are saying, yeah, we we want to restore 
Democrats' voting rights. I think they come down on the idea that it's a, it's a function of, of rights and freedoms, and I think they see it as the right thing to do, the appropriate thing to do. Um, let's see here. The temperature, yeah. Mike from Corinth says temperature was 77, went through rain, temperature dropped to 55, less than 20 miles. I think that's headed our way. Is oh, it yeah, not? it's already dropped 10 degrees out there since I got here. Oh, wow. Unlike the feds, we are running at a surplus, talking about the state. We have flexibility on how to allocate the money. That's absolutely true. But guess why we're running a surplus? The feds. That's why we're running a surplus. You just have to be honest about it. Now, in fairness, in respect for our legislature and our state leaders, unlike some states, they didn't go crazy and spend all that helicopter money the fed showered upon us. Um, Overspend it, I should say placing us uh, into a deficit situation and and requiring us to borrow money. We did pay off a bunch of debt, but the, just the reality is it's also true that that uh, our tax collections are in pretty good shape. Of course, now that we have reduced the income taxes, income taxes are, are coming in, as expected, lower than the past because we've cut income tax rates. That's a good thing. People are sending less money in. Sales taxes is mainly as a result of inflation and, to some extent, a little extra money in the pocket from income taxes. But to a large extent, the helicopter money from the Fed, they're spending it, and that's generating more sales taxes, which is another big source of revenue for the state. Paul and Meridian, stupid question probably, but can the hospitals not write off the expense, or is it just too great? Well, sure, Paul, you can write it off, but... Right, right off, like, against taxes, a non-for-profit hospital? That doesn't help you. I mean, I can write off my charitable contributions, but as well, to, to a certain extent, but that's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset. So I'm not sure where you're going with that, Paul. I mean, you you could work for free and write that off, too, by the way, because that's what's happening. You, you, could, you could donate your time... To charity, and uh, and probably file that as a charitable contribution in kind is what it's called contribution, but that that's apples and oranges, honestly. I mean, if that were in the benef- if that were to everybody's benefit, everybody would just work for free. So that that doesn't really work. Uh, yeah, let's see here. There was um, there's a bill you you may have be aware of it that would direct the Institutions of Higher Learning Board to shut down three universities. I can't remember the exact bill number, but it doesn't specify the universities. It just directs them to find three to shut down. I don't know that that's got a chance of – I think it's 2726. I don't think that's on the Senate yeah, side. Yeah, 2726. I agree with Gerard. These people that currently do not work will not change their ways just for the health insurance. Yeah, and just keep in mind – and, Rhino, I know you've pointed out a million times, why do I need health insurance? I'm getting it free now. That's a problem. It, it would take a – so, again, it's not them who benefits. It's it's the it's the hospitals. It's the Quentin Wentwells. It's the health care providers. They're the ones who benefit from this, not the people that would be receiving the service. They're getting it for free now. But without some way for the hospitals or health care providers to try to get them enrolled. Agree. 
If you're not if you're not enrolled in Medicaid now and you're getting free services, why would you go enroll in Medicaid to I, get the same free service? I think that's a problem. I totally agree. We're coming back in the Element Well studio. We've got Representative Sam Creekmore at twelve twenty today. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio. Little Simple Minds, a great tune. Always love hearing that one. Thank you for that, Rhino. So, some news from Washington to pass on. Mitch McConnell says he will step down as the Senate leader in November. And he is presently at the podium speaking. I'm watching it on the TV. This is live on the Senate floor right now. So, he's going to step down. He's, what, 82, 83, something like that, I believe. And we shall see what the Republicans will do. 82. Okay. So depending on what happens in November with respect to control of the House, the Republicans would be electing either a Senate majority leader or, as is the case now, a Senate minority leader, depending on what happens. Malcolm from Tishomingo County how hard is it to just amend the congressional district so it reads for? They just don't want the citizens to be able to bring something up to vote on. So it's pretty hard, actually, Malcolm, um, because we don't have a valid, a, a valid citizen-initiated ballot measure process. It would require the legislature to pass a resolution to place on the ballot for the people to vote on to amend the present constitutional provision to go from five to four, some other language just says whatever the current number of districts are. However, Malcolm, what that means is that we still only have a ballot initiative process that enables the people to amend the Constitution. All right, so the the goal with what's going on right now, the ballot initiative process in the legislature, is to um, change the Constitution so that people could get a measure, the people could initiate a measure to place on the ballot to vote on that would create or amend statute. And so that's what they're trying to, to make happen. They just can't agree. So that's what would be required, just pointing that out. And by the way, that has to go to the ballot in a statewide election. We do have a statewide election, of course, coming up in November, because we're going to be voting for the president at a minimum. Uh, let's see here. Trey Invade says, if you're convicted of a nonviolent crime, you do not lose your voting rights. Only violent offenders lose their voting rights. Right. Mm, yes is that no. right? It, it's if you're convicted of a felony. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That doesn't necessarily have to be violent. No. Right. You're right. It could be a white-collar crime. Felony. Yes. Thank you. They, uh, Fortenberry Physical Therapy, they are dragging their feet on the ballot initiative to try 
to pass a watered-down Medicaid expansion. The legislature doesn't want Medicaid expansion initiative. No, that's not true. Uh, not at all. That I have not ever heard one person even conflate the two. Um, it, they're completely separate issues that are being worked on by different people, honestly, in the legislature. So, I, I, no, I don't think that's in play whatsoever. Whatsoever. So, uh, let's see here. Oh, something else passed on on the national front. Former President Donald Trump cruised to victory in the great state of Michigan last night. I think receiving what, Rhino? More than 60% of the vote uh, in the primary, defeating his closest contender, competitor which would be Nikki Haley, who says she's staying in. And, of course, we got Super Tuesday next Tuesday. And then we here in Mississippi head to the polls a week after that. On March the 12th, we'll be voting for those running for U.S. House and, of course, one Senate seat, that currently held by Senator Roger Wicker. That's coming up. Uh, But... At this point, you'd have to say Donald Trump's going to be the nominee on the Republican side. I still am a bit concerned. By the way, he got 68% Nikki Haley, the next closest, at 26.56%. Few people are still out there voting for those who have dropped out, because I think they're on the ballot, right? They were That was already in place. DeSantis, Christie, Ramaswamy, Brinkley, Hutchinson. Well, you saw on the other side of the uh, the aisle that one candidate has <laughs> unsuspended her campaign. Marianne Williamson back at it. Yeah, she got 22,000 votes in Michigan, but uncommitted beat her. And this is a protest vote coming from the many Muslims that reside in the great state of Michigan that are protesting Joe Biden's seeming, at least to them, to take the side of Israel in this Gaza conflict, and and uh, which is crazy. And so it's a protest vote. He don't want Again, to... I reiterate, you don't get to play the victim when you threw the first punch. <laughs> that's so true. That's not how the world works, even if you don't have an IQ that's higher than the room temperature. Totally agree. I agree with you, Gerard, says Joe and Quitman. Those people that currently do not want to work will not change their ways just for the health insurance care. I may have already read that. But, I, again, I just want to point out, it's because, as Rhino has pointed out, we have, we, we've, we've been all over this, that I think we'd have a hard time getting people to sign up if we did this because they're getting it for free now. And unless the state were spend some money in promoting it, and it could be that the hospitals do that. They spend money promoting it. Please go sign up so when you show up in my ER, I get paid for it. So, again, I'll say that that um, in, in my view, it's, that's – I know that the legislature and those that, that are signing on to this truly do believe – the lieutenant governor does, and I think the speaker does as well. This is going to improve our labor participation rate. This is going to drive people off the couch, couch and into the workplace. I honestly don't believe that. I, I really don't. And I, I could be proven wrong, and you know what? That's a good thing if I'm proven wrong, if that's the case, if this thing passes. But I don't see that. I don't, And I don't hang my hat on that as, as rationale for passing this, enacting it. I, my big thing is it's fundamentally unfair that the hospitals 
have to take care of people and not get paid for it. I mean, and they're getting paid for it somewhat sideways and indirectly, um, not totally, but I I have a problem with that. And, you know, maybe Mississippi should consider requesting a waiver from the federal government uh, to disenroll from EMTALA. Just don't let EMTALA apply to us, (laughs) the Ronald Reagan law that requires ERs to stabilize patients when they show up. We just don't want to participate in that. And that way the hospitals could just turn people away that don't pay. They they could not go to the emergency room. And it doesn't matter. If they die on the street, they just die on the street. That's what would happen. Um, but and that, there's no doubt. You know this. There's a whole bunch of abuse in the ER. But that's to a great extent because if you're uninsured, for the most part, you can't show up at a primary care clinic and, and uh, be treated and see a doctor. Some will, but for the most part, if you show up, okay, how are you paying today? Now that's that you're not getting past the receptionist, right? You you know, I, I've actually witnessed that sitting in the doctor's office. Okay, well, you need to go here since you don't have any insurance. You know that happens, right? Oh yeah, uh, it, it happens. So and so they they get it, and then they say, okay, well that doesn't do me any good. I can't pay. I'm gonna just go to the ER. They won't turn me away there, and you end up with sniffles, and you hear that, and there's no doubt that consumes valuable resources that should be available for truly emergency situations. You would hope that if this were to pass, it would address that situation and reduce those numbers of encounters. But that's only if people sign up and still are willing to wait and go. They're so accustomed to just showing up at the dang ER for anything um, rather than a truly emergency situation, which is what the ER is designed for. I've sat there before with my, my wife having a kidney stone attack in brutal pain waiting to get through. And you look around and, yeah, there's two or three people like, it doesn't look like an emergency situation. You know what I'm saying there, but they're still, by law, have to do something. So we'll we'll kind of see where that goes. Uh, let's see here. Kevin on the road, if we expand Medicaid, that will pull people off of the exchanges, which means the hospitals will get paid even less. I believe it will hurt the hospitals, not help them. Totally speculative. I've tried to research that issue so many different ways. I've spent so much time. Here's what I can't figure out, Kevin. Uh, when you look at the, the income range of, uh, of those who were on the exchanges who would qualify for Medicaid, they're in that 100 to 150 percent of the federal poverty level. They have coverage in the exchange. Why are there any enrolled in the exchange, even in the states that have expanded Medicaid? Because there are. In the state of Mississippi, it's 124,000. 124, would every single one of them leave that coverage and go to Medicaid? Nobody knows. And this is where I've, I have implored the legislature, can somebody at least do some sort of analysis to figure out how big that risk is? Also, keep in mind, Kevin, that those, um, those insurance companies, they don't pay a whole lot more, if at all, than Medicaid. There's also an out-of-pocket cost that most of them end up eating because the patient stiffs them on it. Medicaid doesn't do that. Coming right back, final segment, hour two. Stay with us. It's so awesome! 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Rocks. We are back in the Element Well studio. 601-879-4395. That would be the ceasefire text line. David Monticello says, uh, let's see here. I want to make sure I get Yeah, you mentioned the hospital's paying to promote it. What happened to the hospital's paying the 10% match? So the, uh, the plan that is contemplated in the House version of the bill includes, uh, follow along with me here, folks, the uh, insurance companies pay a premium tax in the state of Mississippi. It's 3% of premiums sold. That produces revenue for the state. That's all insurance companies, by the way. That's not just health insurance. But the plan that is um, provided for in this measure, HB 1725, would levy an additional 4%, 4% premium tax in addition to the existing premium tax on the managed care organizations, the MCOs, which would be responsible for managing the Medicaid expansion population, just like they manage half or more of, or roughly half of the existing Medicaid program. There's, there's two payment vehicles, there's the managed care, and then there's the fee-for-service, which is actually administered by the Division of Medicaid. But So this 4%, uh, Dave, that when you, when you tack that on existing premiums, Medicaid premiums to the MCOs, plus expansion premiums, that amounts to about $150 million a year. And that is roughly the cost, the 10% cost to the state of Mississippi, for expansion. So it covers it. Now, in addition to that, just going through the math, forget about the program itself. Let's just look at the economics. In addition to the $150 million of additional premium tax, there's uh, the bed tax from the hospitals as well, 10% annual share, which would um, would fund that. And so existing hospital tax, I'm I'm sorry, the existing hospital tax that would be redirected to fund the state share of expansion. All right, but on top of that, there's a this is the big one. There's a five percentage point incentive from the federal government to the ten states which have not expanded, such as Mississippi, to do so, and that ten percent incentive. Uh, pardon me, 5% incentive to the 10 states, 5% each point incentive, is on existing Medicaid. Existing Medicaid. Not 5% on Medicaid expansion, which the federal government covers to the tune of 90%. That amounts to, and it's for two years, for two years, for two years, for those two years, that's about $700 bucks. It's depending on how 
uh, how big the traditional Medicaid program is for the next two years, but roughly about seven hundred million bucks, six fifty to seven hundred. So if the state's cost is one hundred fifty million, follow me along here, and we're going to get six hundred million, seven hundred million. Let's just call it six hundred to be conservative, uh, as an incentive from the federal government, and then the MCOs are paying one hundred fifty million. Well, over the four-year period that the that the um, uh, the law would cover, because remember, automatically repeals at the end of four. So I'm just dealing with the four years. That is 600 million from the federal government during that four-year period coming in. 600 million from the MCOs during that period coming in. That's 1.2 billion, and the cost of the state over that period is four times 150 million, which is 600 million. So the net gain to the state. In four years, over four years, six hundred million. The net gain to the state is six hundred million. You can't look at that and say that's nothing. Now, I fully admit we're just tacking that onto the debt at the federal level. We don't got the money. I've said that a million times. But you know what? All them roads and bridges, all that water infrastructure. All that rural broadband that people have been running around the state celebrating that went to the communities that came from the American Rescue Plan, we don't have that either. All that helicopter money, PPP and stimulus checks and additional Medicaid and all the other money, $3.2 trillion signed into law by President Donald Trump in 2020, we didn't have that either. We don't have any of it, but that doesn't enter in. I'm not saying this is the way to run the railroad. I'm just pointing out that never enters the discussion in Washington. We don't have that money. Who cares? We just print it. That's exactly what's happening every single day. And every time one of these folks is running for office says, I'm going to cut the radical spending. No, you're not. We're stepping aside for a break. We got Fox News, Super Talk News, and the next hour is Representative Sam Creekmore. Stay with us. And now, now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. The afternoon portion of the program is live in the Element Well studio on this. Hump day. Coming up at 1220, it's Representative Sam Creekmore. He's in the House of Representatives, of course, uh, from Union County, serves as the chairman of the Public Health and Human Services Committee. Thomas, you don't know the rules, man. That's all I'm going to tell you. You just freaking don't know the rules. I, I know you think you got all this figured out, but you don't. So, um, let's see here. Uh, so someone said that uh, they're part of a Christian share network, MetaShare, it's called Samaritan. I know those are, there's a few of them out there that have, that have got some members. They're pretty good deals. And, yeah, in general, your provider's not going to accept that insurance, and you're going to have to pay out of pocket 
and then file it and wait. If you're in a position to do that, it's probably a pretty good deal. The vast majority of people in this country don't have 400 bucks in their bank account. They can't do that. Um, and let's be honest. The overwhelming majority of people in this country, in this state, when they go to the doctor and they've got insurance, they want to put that card on the table, hand it over to the person checking you in there, the receptionist, whatever, and and then see the doctor and be treated, and then maybe have a copay or a little deductible or some patient responsibility that you'd have to pay. Sometimes, like you said, Rhino, they'll collect it in advance. Hospitals, I know. If you can, and they'll tell you, if you, if you can't, we'll make arrangements, and they'll come up with a gazillion different things. Most of the time, they eat it. It's what happens. Um, but that's what people want. You're going to file it. Insurance company will settle up with you. You'll send me a bill for my so-called patient responsibility, and uh, and I'll pay it. However, a lot of people, I'm hearing more and more from my physician friends, are just walking away from the patient responsibility. They're not paying it. Just not paying it. So it's triple whammy on the dead gum hospitals. Not only do they have the issue of the uninsured, they got the insured that aren't paying their part. The patient. That's becoming a bigger problem in this country. Is uh, the hospitals provide, not just hospitals, but providers as well, clinics, um, are having to write off the patient responsibility if they didn't collect it when services are rendered. So um, this person says, yeah, I, I'd had a gallbladder surgery. It was 11000 bucks, and couldn't prepay for that, but put it on a credit card. And I guess what you'll do is you put on a credit card, and then you'll file that on your Samaritan and you get reimbursed. But you're fortunate. You got uh, sufficient enough credit to put $11,000 on a credit card. That's just unusual. Most people don't have that. It's not realistic. People that make $15,000 a year, I promise you, they don't have credit cards. We're lucky if they got a bank account, much less a credit card that's got, that can handle that. So I asked the question, what would you do if you showed up and you, and you God forbid, don't want this to happen, uh, were experiencing heart failure, and that resulted in $100,000. And that's about what it costs these days, Rhino. You know that for open heart surgery? It's hundred grand. You going to pay for that up front? No. Um, most people can't. They, they're going to have to rely on that insurance. Well, if they don't have any, then the hospital eats it. Now, I know that when I was going through the, the math on the, the premium tax, sure, that premium is being paid by Medicaid, which is being paid by, um, being paid by the federal and the state. So uh, Robert and Brandon says, who's actually paying all these policy taxes? Don't they just get passed on to policyholders? Well, in the case of Medicaid, the policyholders uh, would be the state of Mississippi and the federal government. So, yeah, it's, it, it makes sense. I get it, Robert, where you're going, but keep this in mind. I'm not saying I like this. I'm just pointing this out. The federal government is paying for 90% of this. State pays for 10. So of those policy taxes that are being baked into the premiums, 10% of that's on the state, 90% is on the Fed. 
and the Fed's not going to raise taxes to do that. Why? Because their votes aren't there in the Congress to do it. And uh, they just print money, because they can. Now, I did see an article from a few months ago that somebody sent to me that said four out of five people in the country favor raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Four out of five. Well, that includes so-called conservative Republicans as well. But then there's a caveat to it, because um, I think somebody tagged me on this crap on Twitter, one of our detractors that likes to troll us. There's a caveat. It was in lieu of cutting Social Security and Medicare. That's the way the question was asked. They failed to include that little nuance. Well, of course, if you told people, I'm going to take your benefits away unless you let me tax those dirty, greedy, rich people. Yeah, most people would say, take my benefits away. Okay, well, fine. Tax them dirty, greedy, rich people. Agree? Yep. That's how people would answer. Well, they forgot that little nuance in there. Because the people that feel the need to be worthless, useless, <laughs> mind-numbingly stupid trolls on social media don't have an ounce of nuance in their pathetic little skulls. <laughs> so true. But They're just ate up with dumb. So I, I get it, Robert, and i I got to tell you, I asked the exact same question, of course, just to make sure I understood the model, and there 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 is actually a federally prescribed model, so... You know that the federal government limits, literally limits, the profit insurers can make. And what I mean by that is it says for every dime you take in, or dollar you take in, 80 cents has got to go out. You can't make any more. You can't, like, achieve efficiencies. you still got to pay 80 cents out the door to the people delivering the care. It's regulated profit is what it is, the health insurance insurance. And that includes MCOs that service Medicaid. Um, so, yeah, you can shell game that money all, all day long. I, I'm with you. And the $600 million, the, the $700 million, the Fed will send uh, a state, the state of Mississippi, should it pass uh, Medicaid expansion. No doubt. That's just adding to the debt, just like Medicaid is. The $6 billion they send to the state of Mississippi every year. We don't have that money either. Nor do we have the money for all the roads and bridges and the airports or Homeland Security or law enforcement. We don't have any of it. We're just printing money and adding it to the debt. I can't emphasize that enough. That that discussion doesn't happen in the halls of Congress. Well, let's see, guys. Here's how much money we got on this side. Here's what we got to spend it on. We just keep allocating it to, oh, we're out. We can't spend anymore. That exercise does not happen. And by the way, once again... The old government scheduled to shut down a good part of it. Two days from now, day after tomorrow, they're back in session. Tomorrow, I think it's today, actually, they went back. What are the chances we're going to get some legitimate, regular order spending bills to fund the government? I say zero to zilch to none. Here we go again, the old continuing resolution. This is what's insane that drives me crazy. Just wanted to point this out. This is to to fund the budget, to pass bills to fund the budget for this fiscal year, which ends in six months. We're halfway into the year, and we ain't got a budget yet. You couldn't run a private company like that. You couldn't. 
you'd get laughed out of town. You'd go bankrupt. Oh, imagine that. So think about that. We're literally deliberating legislation or a, or a spending plan to fund the government for fiscal year 24, which began October 1, 23. How could you take a day off? Your butt ought to be in the Capitol 24 hours a day until you pass it in regular order spending. And that's the nonsense that we are in, the nonsense. Shutting it down, uh, Thomas, assures, I promise you, that Joe Biden will be the next president and Democrats will own the House and the Senate. And your taxes will go up dramatically. I promise you. That's just one thing, because I know you care about that. So, yeah, I know, Thomas. You work for AT&T, and I know. Blue Cross is a third-party administrator, just like they are for the state of Mississippi and many other large entities which uh, have employees in the state of Mississippi. That's very common. I get all that. He says, why did the dregs of society choose to pass weed on a ballot initiative instead of Medicaid expansion, since you say a ballot initiative process will result in Medicaid expansion? So the dregs of society, Rhino, that's who supported that? That must be his new phrase of the week. <laughs> uh, Thomas, I'm telling Which you. Which long-dead philosopher used that? The Hospital Association would get a measure on the back. It may not even just be them, but they are entities that would. We're coming right back with Representative Sam Creekmore. Stay with us. Greatness. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. The Jay Giles Band Centerfold, I think, is kind of one of their more popular tunes. I think they were around when I was, like, in middle school or something. They're, they're pretty old, aren't they? They right? are. Yeah. yeah. So, That's a good group, though. Yes, it is. We got Representative uh, Sam Creekmore. He represents District 14. That's Union County, New Albany, uh, Mississippi, up there in the north. That's it. You, you've been up there a few times. I have. I love it up there. My my daughter's boyfriend, uh, a New Albany native as well. Okay. Yeah. So I've been up there. He's uh, Mr. Creekmore. The Representative Creekmore serves as the chairman of the Public Health and Human Services Committee, and we are uh, glad he's on the program today. You're, uh, geez, you got about an hour and a half. You'd be yeah. back in the Capitol for rocking and rolling again. Yeah, but, huh? You know, 
I, I, I'll I'll skip lunch and miss some meetings to come be on your show, John. Oh, man, I appreciate that, Representative Creekmore. And, and I want you to know uh, how deeply I appreciate you asking me to come uh, address the, the joint hearing last week. I, I hope that was of value, uh, it, honestly. It was a great value. And, uh, and and you presented both sides and incited lots of good conversation during the, the hearing and afterwards. The, People are still talking about. Well, I appreciate that, and um, I I know you're aware of this. The speaker is too, um, and I'll, I'll say it again. I think I'm the only person in the room that's not getting paid while I'm in there, and and it's because I I like you and everybody else in there. I love the state. I want the best for the state. We're all trying to get to the right decision here. Well, and that's to me that's where it all starts. So let's uh, just look at our state and the health of our state, which is not good. It's last and if you just start with that basis right there what can we do to to make our state and our people healthier and this is a vehicle the healthy mississippi works program is is a start and as you know and you testified uh, eloquently so many things can be prevented just by going to the doctor for a checkup or if you have a cold well they'll test you for other things and that well, can end up saving your life, and and did you me. gave a great story. Yeah, did me, uh, and that that resonates. That hits home with with a lot of people in the legislature. That what can we do uh, to help save lives in Mississippi? And another point that I wish in the hearing you you brought up, but you know the federal government mandates that that we take care. The hospitals are required to take care of people, not whether they can pay or not. And that's not a regular business model. You can apply to everything. So, Imtala, which uh, uh, I talked about, yeah, you did, you did, which was a Ronald Reagan bill. That's right, nineteen eighty-six, mm-hmm. Emergency Medical Treatment and, and Active La- Labor Act. Labor Act, right. And and so, if you're requiring a hospital to take care of people, whether they can pay or not, you know, how can we help those hospitals? And this is a way, whether we, whoever invented it, that's been around ten years. To help the hospitals take care of those people who can't pay. That's so I, what we're experiencing now. And I, I, I um, uh, of course, tried to share some real-life examples. And as you know, Sam, uh, my good friend, your good friend as well, Dr. Um, Luann Woodward, who is the vice chancellor of the University of Med- uh, Mississippi Medical Center. Um, you know, you can only imagine situations yeah. that they encounter. And, and that's, our, you know, their, their charter, their mission, their... Um, direction from the state of Mississippi is take care of everybody that walks through the door. That's, that's just right. the bottom line. That's right. That's and the bottom line. Whether they pay or not, it's irrelevant. And I think that's the purview of the legislature, too. we got to take care of all Mississippians. And this is what, whether we like it or not, it's there. It's a vehicle for us to use. Let's take And it doesn't cost the state any money. Yeah, and I just went through the math in the last uh, segment on that. And uh, the Mississippi Hospital Association, of course, uh, Dr. Kim Hoover did a fantastic job presenting uh, their plan, which I was I was uh, kind of been waiting to see that, yeah. Representative Creekmore, because you re- I remember that from 2019, yeah. the MHA CARES plan or whatever they called it back then. I can't remember the exact um, sort of brand they had attached to it. But I hadn't heard from them. And so I appreciate you uh, bringing them in and allowing um, Kim to present. Yeah, and they've you know they had six hospitals break off and all, all during yeah. the campaign yeah. stuff, and I think that kind of derailed some. Yeah. yeah, but they, they they were they've been an integral part of this and yeah. and, and been very helpful, and, and Dr. Hoover did a great job. Yeah, uh, as you saw, and uh, and this plan is very similar to the one yeah. they brought out. Yeah, it, it two was. Years ago. 
Uh, the one thing that um, I was a little disappointed in uh, in the bill that that uh, didn't make it was their proposal to uh, have a twenty dollar per month premium yeah. uh, charge to everyone enrolled. I, I thought that was uh, very reasonable, twenty bucks. Now, um, provided we could collect that, I get worried about that because you yeah. know we got a lot of people who don't have bank accounts. We don't have a way. They don't have credit cards. Don't have bank accounts, and you're waiting for them to. Send money in, and that's a nightmare. And then you got to have a big apparatus at Medicaid or somewhere in the state to collect that money. Uh, and maybe that could be dealt with. Maybe the MCOs deal with that. I, I don't maybe. know. They're more structured too. But that would would, would assuming two hundred two hundred thousand, which is what they estimate sign up, mm-hmm. that would generate forty eight million a year to go towards the program. And, and those are jobs. Yeah, those are money yeah. for hospitals. Uh, that 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 will help. Definitely help. And plus, there's a five percent. Incentive for two years it from the get. federal government, yeah. which amounts to depending on um, the size of traditional Medicaid that they would apply that to. It's between six hundred seven hundred million dollars, according to my calculation. They will come into our state. Yeah, that's 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 huge. And make no mistake, I mean, these people are nineteen to sixty four, and if it's a single individual, they're making twenty thousand or below. You know, it's tough. And and this would provide them insurance. If it's a family, they're making thirty four thousand, and you know th- this would help them live healthier lives. And that, that, that's a, not a big ask, if you ask me. Well, uh, Representative Missy McGee, who chairs the Medicaid committee, uh, you know, she shared that her goal was to to get us off the the top of the list in in infant and uh, maternal mortality, which is. It is just so um, so disheartening, honestly, and and it um, and these are real people with with real health problems, much of which could be avoided, as you know. Absolutely, and and let's let's look at the the Mississippi Delta too. Um, you know, we we've got a plan uh, to help those hospitals as well. We wanted to get Medicaid this bill out first, the Mississippi Healthy Mississippi Works bill. And then we're gonna, we've got a bill to hopefully help the Mississippi Delta. It's in the okay. Senate. came out of committee today in the okay. Senate. We have okay. a companion bill in the House that we'll hope to bring out Tuesday. This is totally separate from totally separate. Medicaid here. Mm-hmm. Just totally uh, separate. Uh, some sort of financial assistance we're talking about, like we kind of did last year. We had something. It so. will be, but it's specifically for the Delta, less DeSoto County. Okay. And it's a volunteer. They're not required to, to join this network. Okay. But it's the Delta Regional Health Authority, and it'll create a board that oversees them. And unlike the hub-and-spoke method where there's a central hospital, the the main hospitals that join, instead of them competing for doctors and competing for services, they'll each take certain services that they specialize in and, and then share. Okay. So if, if you're having a heart issue, you'll go to maybe Greenville. Yeah. If you're having cancer, you may go to Greenwood. Okay. Makes sense. So, and, and then they can pool their resources and compete with other regions for doctors and specialties. So, okay, uh, we've got that coming down the pike too. And so, but we want to get the healthy Mississippi out first, yeah, and then and then go from there. Well, I know that the the speaker has been championing uh, this. He, he's the author uh, of the measure, and uh, and so it came came out of committee yesterday. It mm-hmm. really uh, wasn't um, a lot of consternation. It was fairly short and uneventful, honestly. And then uh, Chairman. Uh, McGee, Chairwoman McGee, held a vote, and, and, and it was unanimous, best I could tell. Yeah, and she's put in a lot of work and a lot of time on this. She has. And and honestly, it, it, you may think, well, this just started since January, but these plans have been vetted 
and gone through for for a couple of years. Again, we talked about the hospital yeah. plan, but yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of work put into this, and I'm excited to see what happens today. Well, um, it's it's different. Do you not think, Representative Creek, more in that uh, former Speaker of the House, uh, uh, Philip Gunn, who you and I have tremendous respect for, and was a fantastic Speaker of the House, a great leader for the state of Mississippi, did much good. Uh, this is this is nothing. He, something he could just never support. He never did support yeah. it. And then I, I have great respect. He's been very kind and, and good to me, and a, really a mentor of mine. Sure. And hope, just like for you, I hope he'll continue to serve Mississippi. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's, it's it wasn't going to come through with, with his leadership. Speaker White has uh, just a different perspective and, and attitude towards this. I think that's why we're where we are. Yes, he's got a wife that's in the business, yep. and his daughter will be a freshman at UMC. I didn't know that. She, she's in the rural health uh, program. Well, if you can stick around, we'll continue yeah. the discussion. we got Representative Sam Creekmore in the Element Well studio. We're coming right by. Electric Avenue. From the Seabrook Paint Doctor. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Representative Sam Creekmore. That would be bread. That's about 1971 or so. I saw him at the Mississippi Coliseum, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was growing up. Uh, all right, so this uh, one of the things that uh, Chairwoman McGee talked about and has been talking about, that, that uh, of course, this legislation flowed through the Medicaid committee, was the uh, the objective, one of the major objectives being to improve the overall quality of health and health care outcomes for Mississippians. And so one of the things I asked her, Representative Creekmore, is kind of what's what's the what are the metrics that we will uh, be tracking and, and what's the process for that? I didn't really see anything specifically in the bill around that. What can you help us with there? Right. And, and I don't think there is anything to measure it in the bill. However, the Department of Health, and they put out reports annually about, just like the emphasis, mortality, uh, obesity, uh, and and just a a very detailed report every year. And Dr. Edney's in in charge of that. So that will continue. And one of the things we did this year uh, is have a hearing with Dr. Edney and the Department of Health and reviewed all that data that they record and we'll continue to do that. It was a joint hearing with the Senate, and we'll continue to do that annually when we're in session to have those hearings and see if we're improving uh, from that data. It may not be as detailed metrics as perhaps you're, well, you're thinking of, but... I don't know that I have anything right. in mind, but... 
but it, that data is there, and we'll continue to record that and monitor it in the legislature. Okay. Well, and I, Dr. Edney is a, a huge outspoken advocate for health in his role, more so than health care policy, as you know. He's way more oriented towards health. He is, and he has a, a passion for Mississippi, as yes, we've talked about, sure. and really cares about about taking care of people. And I think uh, uh, professionally is an addiction specialist, if I'm not mistaken. That, that's, that's correct. His, right? It's a practice area. And his, his wife's a, a music therapist. I didn't know so that. That helps uh, with addiction and all. Yeah, music sure. Therapy is used a lot in that aspect. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a very detailed report that he gives, and, and it's good, useful information. And I, I won't forget it. He, he was a... We're, we've, he was so excited that we've moved from 50th to 45th in obesity in the yeah. United States. And, yeah. and I'm like, you know, that's, that's still not good, but that's, he, that's improvement. Progress, yeah, yeah sure. And, and so that, you know, that I, I thought that, that stuck out to me. But he, he kind of summed everything up, and, and I like this, this phrase, but a, a healthier Mississippi makes a wealthier Mississippi. Yeah. And, and I like that. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for, a healthier Mississippi and a working Mississippi, uh, and and I think that's true as well. Um, you know, I certainly the lieutenant governor, the speaker of both, um, suggested that as as drivers for their support of uh, of this action. They they believe that this would improve the health of the of the state um, and also improve the labor force participation rate. Something we all know we got to oh, do something no. about. Yes, I mean, yeah. it, <laughs> That's one of the biggest issues we have. I mean, everybody needs workforce, and, and we seem to be lacking it. Yet, we only have 53% participating. So I know. It, whatever we can do to incentivize people, and this is an incentive, if you can get health care by working, let's do it. Get a, yeah. Let's go out and get a job. All right. So we don't have anything thus far right out of the senate as far as i know we have a we have a placeholder framework that's it that's all that's all i've seen code and that's it yeah but but we're told something's coming that's that's what i'm told and i've I've worked closely with the senate side uh not necessarily on on on, uh this mississippi works but in the healthcare realm with ha brian and it's it's unique and i'm constantly talking with their leadership so they're on board from the ones I've talked to with the, with this plan, and, and I think they'll produce one. Well, and and the lieutenant governor was on a couple of days ago with Mr. Gallo, and uh, he he said the same, but he made it very clear he, he could not support any measure that would uh, implement um, this new coverage group expansion in the state of Mississippi without this uh, very explicit work requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are some who have concerns, Representative Creekmore, that, okay, if we don't get the work requirement waiver approved, that the Division of Medicaid, in accordance with the measure as drafted, would still be instructed to implement the program, though it does have a four-year repealer on it. Right. It's, it's essentially a pilot program, and that is true. It, if for some reason the work requirement is struck down, there is a provision that, that this can continue forth. Um, not necessarily in a traditional Medicaid way, but uh, it still has other requirements. But yeah, we're, but we're, we're we're optimistic the work piece will remain in there. From the federal point of view, mostly run by Democrats, I mean they want a red state to be part of this. That would be, and I've said that before. Though I, I'm not because the Biden administration has been clear that if if uh, we're, we're not going to approve any work requirements of Medicaid programs. However. 
if it's for a deep red state to expand, something they desperately yeah. want the 10 states which haven't expanded to do, maybe they'll uh, have a different take. Yeah. We, if we don't ask, it won't I, happen. I so agree. We're, we're going we're gonna to go forward with it. I agree. And, of course, this would have to come from uh, the Division of Medicaid yeah. at the instruction of the governor, right? Right, which is a unique... Uh... Yeah, it is, because <laughs> the governor's made it clear he doesn't support this. Um, he, he does, and I... He has, but I'm hoping uh, that we have the votes, and I think today we'll we'll, we'll bring it out. But uh, the, to send the message that, at least on the House side, there's a real care and and want to get this through. And, and you know, if we can get two thirds, wow, that that'd be incredible. Well, you know what the lieutenant governor said is he he thought that uh, the governor's main concern, and and I share it as well, is that you know if that if this is something that's that's going to come at a significant cost yeah. to the state of Mississippi. That's a problem, and I'm with you. I, um, I think every, I think most people yeah. are. But what we've seen in the financial model, uh, to the extent that it it is accurate as projected, is that it's it's several years out before the state uh, really has um, any yeah. financial investment right. to be made. I mean, I use the analogy: of if you're going to give me a hundred dollars, if I give you ten, I'll make that deal every day. Oh, and that's sure. essentially what what this is. Sure, and I, I've done the same thing. Yeah, I get that from a strictly yeah, from a financial perspective. I know you do. Yeah, um, and so based on the the additional tax that would be levied on the MCOs, mm-hmm. now folks have said, okay, well, you know that's going to be baked into the premiums. That's true, but the majority of that's being paid for by the federal government as well. So that's right. Um, it's it and it's it's a shell game to some extent. There's no doubt, but just in terms of the state of Mississippi's general fund spending, which is the way you have to look at, at this, it's really several years out before yeah. the state of Mississippi would um, be responsible for um, providing the matching funds when you think about all the inflows. That's right. And going back to paying, uh, the citizens of Mississippi that pay for insurance or pay for their medical expenses are already paying. We're paying it now. Otherwise, the hospitals would all that, fold today. They fold. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't survive, and and that's that's baked into our our commercial premiums. Um, that's also baked into the state's insurance plan as well, as you yeah. well know. And there and there been some concerns about seeing those premiums rise right. uh, to state employees. And and we've seen this program from President Obama to President Trump, and it's still here. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I there's there's could be rational, legitimate, logical reasons to oppose it. That ain't one of them to me. No. I don't. I just. I don't see that happening. I. I really don't. I mean, we're at risk of that in in traditional Medicaid. If you think about it, well, that's the true. Federal government yeah. could show up any day and say, "Hey we're guys, we're changing the F map. You're on your own now," yeah. and the whole thing would fold in the crater. That's not likely to happen. Yeah. They got one thing the state of Mississippi doesn't, and that's a, a money printing press. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have yeah, that luxury. We have to balance our budget. We have to balance the budget, and they don't. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that, hey, we're all in, have skin in that game because the federal government, we're all citizens of the country. I get it, but that, that is, um, that's a different matter that needs to be addressed, I think, in a, in a different setting. Yeah. Um, but here we go. So 2 o'clock today. 2 o'clock to today. It's going to be interesting to- where is this on the schedule? I hadn't looked at it yet. I, I hadn't seen the schedule today. Because um, you probably have a few measures today, huh? You think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll yeah. have we'll have a few. But yeah. I, I'm I'm pretty sure this one's coming out today. What else are you working on in your committee at this point? Well, 
yesterday we got out um, where dental hygienists can go to nursing homes. This is done in 48 other states. Um, so we got that bill out of committee, and it'll, we'll take it to the floor. Huh. And, and that's just more more health care yeah. for for our elderly. Sure. And sure. Um, I've, I've got a you know me and mental health. I've got a bill I'm going to bring out tomorrow. That I hope will help keep up people big, out of jail. Big issue. Yes, sir. Big issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know over on the Senate side, Senator Nicole Boyd, as you well know, is passionate about this issue yeah. and subject. They, they've been Working very on. helpful uh, to me with, with the mental health. It's, it's it's not us versus them. It's a work together. Good. Well, always good to see you. Appreciate you coming in. And and um, thank you for all your hard work. Oh, no. Thank you. That's, that's always a pleasure to be on your show. Enjoyed it. Representative Sam Creekmore has been our guest. Folks, we're coming right back with the final segment of Middays. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Final segment of Middays from the Element Well Studio. The biggest name in entertainment right now is Taylor Swift, and we're giving you a chance to win tickets to see her in concert, plus money in your pocket. Margaritaville Resort in Paradise, Pier Fun Park in Biloxi, along with Super Talk Mississippi, present Taylor Swift. A cash and a cash gift. Here's what you get. A pair of tickets to see Taylor Swift's ERA's tour, is it ERA's tour? ERA's. ERA's tour at the Superdome in New Orleans on Saturday, October 26th, plus a thousand bucks. How can you win? Just enter your name and contact info at one of our registration boxes at select locations across the state. Go to supertalk.fm slash Taylor Swift to find the full list of registration locations and more info. Also, don't forget to go to the presidential primary page, supertalk.fm slash elections, especially with the old Super Tuesday coming up next Tuesday. Man, it's hard to believe that is already here. We're just rocking and rolling. Hunter Biden on the Hill testifying today. My dad do nothing about this. What a dang liar. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are politicians going to be willing going to be willing and courageous enough to repeal if rules change. Yeah, so uh, rules change. This is on ceasefire text line. Uh, the big thing is the 90% FMAP, the federal match, 90% for the expansion coverage group. Yes, there is a, uh, a provision of the legislation that should that decrease, um, automatically the program goes away. Uh, I'd say the chances of the of the federal government reducing the ninety percent FMAP on the expansion coverage group 
are about one in eight hundred billion million zero gillion trillion. And it's just not going to happen. And look, the federal government can change the F map on the traditional Medicaid program any day, any day. Not going to happen. It's politically, it's political suicide. Just is. That'd be like somebody showing up today and say, uh, by the way, just want to let you know we're cutting your Social Security check. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. And now again, do we have the money? No, we don't. We don't have the money for any of it. And that's a concern. That's a problem. And I know people say, well, that's not sustainable. Well, I hear them, and I'm concerned about that as well. But we were saying the debt's not sustainable when it was 2 or $3 trillion a few decades ago. Now it's $34. we are still here. How do we sustain it? Money supply, inflation. We're never going to pay it back. Um, that's really off the table. It's just keeping inflation in check by expanding the money supply. And... I don't care who gets elected president. We're not going to balance the budget. We're not going to start paying off the debt. It's just not going to happen. So, but that's. But I did want to point that out that there is um, a provision that essentially ends the program if the federal government cuts the FMAP percentage. More people coming over heading to the state if they expand it. I'm not sure what that means exactly. More people. You follow that, Rhino? More people coming over. Are they saying we would see a population increase with yep. the expansion of Medicaid? I don't know about that. Louisiana has expanded. Arkansas has expanded. Tennessee is not. And uh, Alabama's not. I, I would submit that most people in that income range really aren't mobile enough to uh to move and and if they do they have to have work here so yeah if they come here to work we'd certainly welcome them um we we need laborers in the workforce yeah and if we expanded they'd have this health care available to them i i gotta read the bill again i I found a little bitty kind of drafting anomaly that i'm a bit confused about i shared with you that has to do with employer coverage so there is one provision of the bill that if someone is currently enrolled in their employer group coverage but they qualify for Medicaid based on their income, if they wanted to transition to Medicaid and essentially have zero-cost premiums, um, they would have to wait after disenrolling from their employer group coverage for 12 months. That means no insurance for 12 months. Um, I'm not totally convinced that there's a whole lot of people that even fit that scenario where they make less than 138% of the federal poverty level and they're enrolled in their employer group coverage. I dare say there's like hardly anybody. If they're working for small employers, making less than 20000 bucks a year, there's a high, high, high probability their small employers don't even offer coverage. And if they do, they don't pay hardly anything for it. I don't think that's a lot of people. We're out of here today. Thanks so much for joining us. We're coming back again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone.
Talk Mississippi Media Production.